0: It's the metabolic changes that occur at the cell level.
1: Welcome to the Primary Blueprint podcast.
0: As a result of the signals that you're sending, the DNA
1: from our studios in Malibu, California.
0: Over the next period of hours or days, it really manifests itself in an increased metabolism
1: and a, in a metabolic efficiency. Back in the studios, host Brad Kearns here again with Mark Sisson for some more questions because they just keep piling up. So let's get right to it, Mark. Let's do it. The first one is written in from Mark in New York City. And he says, Dear Mark, in an earlier podcast, you mentioned how you often do sprints on a stationary bike instead of running. I wonder if your sprints are longer in duration on the bike because of the lessened degree of difficulty in comparison to running sprints on the sand or on the ground. Also, how much recovery time would you take from a bike sprint session versus a running sprint session? Uh, great question. Great question.
0: Um, one of the reasons I've um, elected to start doing some sprints midweek on the bike is because my number one sprint workout every week is my ultimate Frisbee game. And that's really two hours of uh, intense running and changing direction and accelerating uh, and decelerating because once you catch the Frisbee, you you have to come to a complete stop. Uh, so that that's really my main workout of the week, even though it's entirely fun. In the middle of the week, uh, I'll do a sprint session on the bike One of the reasons I've chosen to do that now is to save my Achilles. So I have um, 60-year-old Achilles tendons that are starting to – How many miles do those Achilles tendons (laughs)
1: have on them about?
0: yeah, I don't know, 100,000 maybe or more. Anyway, um, I want to be careful not to stress them too much. So rather than hit the beach with sprints barefoot in the middle of the week and then do it again on Sunday with the ultimate game, uh, I do my sprints on the bike. So yeah, that's one of the answers. Is yes, I do that. So because it's easier on the on the joints and easier on the on the feet. The main reason to do sprints is to get the heart rate as high as you can and sustain it for as long as you can. Uh, In this case, uh, typically with my interval sessions on the bike, it's anywhere from forty seconds to two minutes. Uh, For me, what I like to do is warm up with uh, maybe ten or fifteen minutes of riding which is um, starts out very easy and then just gradually increasing the intensity to where I'm, I'm at a point where I'm close to what I'll be riding at when I start my intervals. So I'll warm up for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, then I'll drop it down to a very easy level and proceed to punch it up to where I know I can hold. Again, like the other day, I did uh, 40 seconds on and a minute 20 off. So that was my those were my intervals, and I did eight of those. So I'm doing 16 minutes of work. I'm getting eight 40-second intervals. Uh, I'm getting a minute 20 of rest. So I ramp it up, uh, just you know hit the button and increase the resistance. Uh, on the bike I was on the other day, that was 16, I think. Uh, try to keep my RPMs above 90 uh, at least, and and if you can get to 100, or if I can get to 100, that's a good number for me. Um, I, I know that my heart rate's going to get up to uh, close to max, if not max, in that period of time. And then as soon as I hit the the prescribed interval, in this case it was 40 seconds, hit that button, drop it down to uh, an easier, uh, I don't drop it down to zero, but I might drop it from 16, I went down to 12, let's say. And then I can ride it out and uh, recover at that. I do a a minute 20-second recovery and then back up, ramp it back up and do 40 seconds. So with that 10 or 15-minute warm-up, with the 16 minutes of intervals, and with a 5-minute cool-down, I'm, I'm out of there in like 37 minutes. And it's one of the best workouts I do all week. Now, I've been coaching my wife and her friend Betsy. Uh, they've been doing um, on the same day, so as soon as I finish mine, I go over and coach them. They've been doing uh, treadmill workouts, and they've been doing treadmill sprints. And what they do is they, they'll put the treadmill at a level of 6 or, or 7, an incline of 6 or 7, and then ramp it up and do 30 seconds hard with a two minute rest. So there are all kinds of ways to configure these. So my bike intervals, back to the bike intervals, when I do 40 and 120, those are uh, standard. Then I might do, some days I might do two minutes, but I'm going to try and pace the entire two minute interval to where I can maintain a high level of output, uh, but, and not go into complete oxygen debt, say 40 seconds in, or say a minute 20 in, but I can I can hold that for the entire hundred and twenty seconds the entire entire two minutes, and then I might take a three minute rest in the old days of um, interval training it used to be <laughs> it used to be the less rest you could you could take the the better off you were i'm I'm starting to think now that particularly with these all out intervals, get as much rest as you think you require to to give it an all out effort every time and then when you hit that final interval session, and you know that you are truly knackered, cut it off and and have that be the end of it. And if you can't say finish the fourth interval, or can't finish the fifth interval at a at a reasonably same level of output, then you're not ready to do that one, and you shouldn't be striving and and struggling to get through that last interval because we don't want to leave that workout in sh- in a shambles. We want to leave that workout tired, but ready to recover and, and do it even better the next time.
1: Right. And this is sort of a, a sneak preview of some of the content in the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification, which is about to be launched. But in there, there you go into a lot of detail about uh, having a quality sprint session and quality, meaning that each interval is similar in terms of uh, not only output, but also how the perceived exertion, so you're not driving yourself into a, a, dig, a deep hole and, and getting exhausted by the last one. But in fact, the last one is pretty close to as fast as the first one if you could measure it, and also that it's, you're not overly taxed. That's exactly right. And again, we, now we, do, we
0: try to develop this intuitive sense of where the line is, where the edge is. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, that workout I did with 16 half-mile repeat intervals uh, was I think a great miss that one. I think I missed that day. <laughs> yeah, you should have been there, but that was too much for that day. And I should have intuitively known at the end of like twelve of them that that was it. But because I had written down that I needed to do sixteen, and I you know wanted to prove to myself that I could do that, I, I made it through the workout, and then I got sick and I was down for the next couple of weeks. So again, developing that that intuitive sense. But it really it's about managing the effort so that whenever you do that interval. Set whether it's ten seconds or thirty seconds or two minutes that you spread the effort out equally over that uh, that time period, and that you give yourself a sufficient amount of rest in between. Now, one other set of uh, intervals that we like to talk about is the Tabatas, and Tabatas are great. You do twenty seconds on uh, you know, of sprint or hard and 10 seconds of rest. And you do that for four minutes and it's a, it's a real ball buster. It'll really, uh, take it out of you. It was originally designed just to be that one four minute session, but a lot of people, myself included, will do, uh, maybe three of those four minute sessions. But again, it's, it's one of those crazy, uh, interval sessions that when you get, when you're finished with it, you realize you have actually, um, prompted your body to respond by getting stronger and better and more
1: efficient at what it does. So for those techie exercise listeners, you're you're making a distinction here between that lengthy rest period and that true all-out maximum effort uh, delivered in the the 40 seconds on and resting a minute 20, which is plenty of time to rest and and you're well-recovered, as opposed to a true interval workout where you might be compressing that rest you used to have us triathletes do six times three minutes with a 30-second rest between the three minutes. So in that 20-something minutes, we're working hard most of the time as opposed to your sprint where you're just trying to put maximum output out there for 40 seconds with plenty of rest in between each one. Exactly. This is about uh, getting the heart rate up as high as you can and not taxing
0: the joints. So if you're somebody who has bad knees... Running is not your your gig for this, and you can do it on the bike, you can do it on the elliptical, you can even do it in the pool. Um, but in this particular instance of of looking, and they were all manifestations of of interval training. So, I don't want to pigeonhole all of this into that one category that says work hard, 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 and then get sufficient rest. Because in the days of uh, swimming intervals, you know you're always going on the 115 or on the 120, and sometimes. You know, you're, you're coming in in 110 and you've gotta go five seconds later. So so that's a different sort of concept. But it really, it's a, it's about just making sure that you, in this case, get your heart rate up there. We, if we talk in terms of METs, you know, one MET or one metabolic level is basically just walking around and existing, and that's your metabolism and the rate at which you, you burn calories. And then as we increase the amount of work output that we're doing, a lot of the equipment will register it in two Mets or three Mets or f- five Mets. And some of these um, interval training sessions can get into the 25 or 30 Mets, meaning your output is 25 to 30 times your resting metabolic rate. But it's only for 10 seconds or 20 seconds or 40 seconds at a time. That is sufficient to generate the kind of changes in the body that last for hours and days. So w- when you compare, the efficiency of an interval session to what's going on with a long, slow distance workout. Yeah, when you're when you're doing a, a 10 mile run easy or you're doing an easy bike ride or you're doing even chronic cardio for that matter and you're looking at burning calories, what you really are seeing are just the calories burned in that workout. Whereas when you're doing an interval session and a hard interval session, you really don't care about the calories you're burning in that workout because the amount of time you're spending actually burning calories and doing a lot of work isn't that great, but it's the, it's the metabolic changes that occur at the cell level as a result of the signals that you're sending the DNA, the genes, uh, over the next period of hours or days that really manifest themselves in an increased metabolism in and in a metabolic efficiency, in uh, metabolic flexibility to where you can burn fat Uh, more efficiently. You're increasing the number of mitochondria. You're increasing your aerobic efficiency, your top end power output threshold. All of these elements um, really respond dramatically to a sprint workout. And the final thing I'll say about this is, is so many people who have come to me and said, look, Mark, I love what you do with the Primal Blueprint. I'm eating right. I'm exercising, but I've hit a plateau and I'm not getting to the next level. What should I do? The first question I'll ask is, well, are you sprinting? And if the answer is no, then the response is, look, you got to start sprinting. You got to see what that does to jump up your metabolism.
1: Well, there's been some recent studies that you referenced extensively in the certification again that sprinting is really the only type of workout that directly promotes fat loss because it doesn't have that increased calorie intake Aspect to it, like chronic exercise does, or, or exercise of any sustained period is made up for with increased appetite, as, as the key concept uh, in the Primal Blueprint 21 Day Total Body Transformation talks about.
0: Right. The, the idea that when you do uh, chronic cardio or any kind of long, slow aerobic activity that's, that's uh, primarily tapping into your glycogen stores, and it doesn't have to be slow, it can actually be fast, heart rate of 75 to 80% of your max, which is what a lot of athletes, endurance athletes, train at. Uh, yeah, the, the main thing that happens is you burn a lot of sugar, a little bit of fat, but a lot of sugar, and then your brain says, oh, we got to replenish glycogen tonight, so there's this tendency to overeat. That doesn't happen with an appropriate sprint workout.
1: So can you speculate why for a moment that the science shows that sprinting is the only type of exercise that directly contributes to fat loss? Everything that we happens when we
0: train... Has a metabolic effect, and typically the results of the activities that we choose create different streams of down uh, metabolites that cause different uh, genes to turn on or off. In the case of sprinting, the uh, metabolic effects or the metabolites of having sprinted a lot uh, will will generate the kind of signals to cause us to build muscle uh, to improve the
1: efficiency of those muscles, and to get rid of the extra weight that we're carrying. Even though it's only a 15-minute session once a week, it's having this much of an impact on the genes? Absolutely. Uh, The the body doesn't want to make these changes unless you
0: give it a real good reason to do so, which is why going out and running a 10K every day ultimately doesn't manifest itself in any kind of uh, noticeable changes for most people. They run the same time and the same distance every day, and they they don't lose the weight, they don't get any stronger, they don't get any faster. It's by upping the ante, it's by increasing the requirement of the body to keep up with the demands that you've put on it through this workout that the body has to be, it's forced into making changes, it's forced into building muscle, it's forced into becoming more efficient at uh, extracting energy from stored body fat. It's forced to increase the uh, power of your lungs and the ability of your red blood cells to carry oxygen. So all of these are changes that happen at the level of DNA that are caused by our conscious choice to do a particular activity in a particular fashion. Ultimately, you know, when we spend a lot of time running miles and miles and miles and we don't get the changes that we're looking for, it's because the body says, hey, I know how to do this. I don't need to make a change. This is easy for me. I've I've fallen into this pattern where I don't even have to expend that many calories to do what you're asking me to do. Conversely, when you do a hard, hard sprint workout, it doesn't take much time, but the body says, holy some moly, if you're gonna try this again in the next couple of days, we have to make some changes. We have to adapt to this requirement that you put that you're putting upon us. And finally, uh, the main reason that you don't that you that it's the most efficient way to lose weight is because You're only doing it once or twice a week, so you're not in a chronic pattern where you're depleting, 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 and then having to go home and and replenish huge amounts of
1: glycogen that you've uh, dumped out of your system. Okay, so with those vigorous, sustained glycolytic workouts, like the 45-minute killer CrossFit session or the endurance athlete doing their intervals and tempo runs, you get that corresponding appetite increase, but with sprinting, A, because it's such an extreme shock to the The metabolism, the 30-met volume, and B, because they're short in duration, that's where you get that direct body fat reduction stimulation. Yeah, you might even lose your appetite as a result of a sprint workout. It may be that
0: as opposed to the chronic stuff where you go home and, I mean, I remember in the old days of running, I would think about what I was going to eat and what I was going to drink the entire last half hour of every workout I ever did. Uh, because that was the chronic nature of it. In a sprint workout, a lot of times I feel like, well, if I can hang on one more time and not throw up, um, you know, that this is a good thing. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it, the, the appetite doesn't enter into the equation. You don't f- spend the last part of a 30-second interval thinking about what you're going to eat when you get home. The appetite seems to dissipate in the short term and doesn't seem to want to make up for it in the long term.
1: Uh, Well, there's been uh, plenty of research showing that when you elevate your body temperature, it dulls your appetite. So when you're sprinting and your body temperature is elevated for a couple hours afterward, probably. And in contrast, we've read where swimming has been shown not to stimulate a reduction in body fat, even though they're burning thousands and thousands of calories. One main reason being that the body temperature does not elevate at all. Right. And another reason that, that swimmers tend not to be as cut and lean in general
0: as uh, most other athletes of the same sort of physical output, is that you're training in water that's 81 or 82 degrees, which is warm enough, I suppose, but it's still 18, 17 or 18 degrees cooler than normal body temperature. And if you spend four, five, six hours a day in that environment where – the water, which has a, a 200 times greater tendency to extract heat than air does from you, uh, the body gets the message. It's it, it, there's literally a signal sent to sensors in the skin that says, "Look, if we're going to spend this amount of time in the water and we're going to become, we're, we're going to have energy heat lost through the skin into the water, let's build a layer of insulation." And typically, you'll see in swimmers, they have a little bit more body fat than. Athletes in other sports, that are having the same amount of caloric output on a given workout.
1: And also, they're not fighting gravity, such as sprinters are, which is another stimulus to reduce the unnecessary weight being body fat for the sprinter. And that's, I guess, why there's no fat sprinters in the world, right, Mark? That would be one reason. And so
0: while we're on the topic, uh, it's also a reason why sprinting is better for bone density, and swimming is not so good for bone density. So a lot of people who have joint issues and and go into the pool and start swimming. And by the way, I'm a big fan of swimming as a recreation and as a form of exercise. But I'm just suggesting that uh, there, there are certain benefits that accrue to sprinting that don't accrue to spending time sprinting in the pool, for instance. So sprinting on the track, bone density would be one major complement to that. You're actually putting stress on the joints, which Send signals to the genes to make those bones uh, more dense and stronger to withstand the impact, the G-forces that you're putting on them. That doesn't exist in the water.
1: And as we've seen at primal cons, there's always a starting point that's open to virtually everyone unless you have serious joint issues. So if you're hesitant to sprint because you don't envision yourself as an antelope running down the field. You can go on a grass or a soft surface and just get into some wind sprints and begin the process of building into some sprint competency and get all those wonderful metabolic benefits too. Absolutely. It's really a question of um, figuring out
0: where you start from today. What's your baseline? uh, If you're in your 60s or 70s, you have bad joints. Maybe it's on the bike. Maybe it's on an elliptical trainer. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's in a pool, but in waist-deep water in a pool where you're working against the, uh, the resistance of the water itself, but you're supported in some regards so your joints aren't uh, being impacted. There's always a starting point, and then from there you can uh, layer on the levels of, of increased resistance uh, or increased metabolic output.
1: Okay, Jason's been waiting a long time on line two, so let's hear his question. Hey, Mark. My name's Jason and I'm a University of Florida student. I'm still a little confused about resistant starches. Are they rather a component of foods or a group of foods? And furthermore, apart from supplementation, how can I incorporate the benefits of resistant starches if I don't want to get out of my comfortable range of carbohydrate intake? Thank you.
0: Great question. So resistant starches, are a, um, a form of oligosaccharide, a, f- a family of sugars, if you will, that are resistant to digestion in our gut through our main digestive process, which involves the stomach, the acids in the stomach, the enzymes, the proteolytic enzymes in our stomach, and so on. It bypasses all of that, bypasses digestion in the upper part of the small intestine, uh, but becomes Uh, available as a food source to the bacteria in the lower part of the digestive tract. And it's the resistant starches that serve as that main source of food for the hundred trillion or so bacteria that reside in the gut. Now, resistant starches are a part of food, uh, for sure. They're what we would call the soluble fiber part of fruits and vegetables, which is uh, mainly where we in the primal blueprint and and paleosphere would derive most of our resistant starches, plantains, green bananas, cold white potatoes, which brings me to an interesting concept. You know, a cooked potato doesn't have that much resistant starch. But uh, in fact, most of what happens with a cooked potato is it becomes glucose and becomes available as an energy source for the human part of who you are. Uh, But a cold potato where a lot of the starches have been uh, crystallized now are not available for digestion as a hu- of the human part of you, but the again the hundred trillion or so uh, bacterial cells that reside within you. Now it's available for them to digest. So uh, bananas, another example: a ripe banana, uh, thirty grams of of uh, available carbohydrate. A green banana, not so much. Most of it is resistant starch. So when we talk about resistant starch, we're talking about a component of food. So it's not a separate group of food. It's a component of food. It's present in some foods. It's completely missing from a lot of other foods. So we look for foods that have some resistant starch in them. Again, it gets us to the plant uh, base of the Primal Blueprint Eating Pyramid. And um, then we look at, uh, okay, so in terms of my personal goals for taking in carbohydrate, how do I parse this? How do I figure out which of the carbohydrates that I'm taking in I'm eating, and which of those are being converted into short-chain fatty acids by the bacteria in my gut? Uh, again, it, it just becomes incumbent upon the person to be able to look at a food or, or know enough about a group of foods to say yes, if I'm having uh, green bananas, um, I'm feeding my, uh, my bacteria, that's not accruing to my own carbohydrate intake. It's not affecting my insulin levels. In fact, it's probably uh, mitigating my insulin levels on the other hand, if I have a ripe banana uh, it 's an entirely different I was going to say bag of worms, but that doesn 't seem to be right here it 's an entirely different uh, situation. We do take some resistant starch uh, supplements as a means of supplementing a diet that 's deficient in resistant starches so if we say somebody we see somebody who who uh, doesn 't have a very healthy gut biome at present they're their uh, probiotics within them are trending toward the bad guys instead of the good guys. And you want to fix that. One of the ways to attempt to fix that is by increasing the amount of resistant starch in your diet. And if you can't do it through the foods you eat, you can certainly do it through taking supplemental forms of resistant starch. And again, it could be plantain flour, it could be uh, raw potato starch, and any number of other possibilities. But the idea is to feed the healthy bacteria what they're craving, which is this form of resistant starch that they use to, to then build up their uh, habitat
1: and their colonies to, to sort of overwhelm or crowd out the bad bacteria. So the junk food diet, of course, that person's going to be deficient in healthy bacteria. What about a primal, paleo, strict, aligned eater that can they possibly become deficient in resistant starch because they're avoiding the carbs so carefully? Could well be. I mean, it could be that if, you, if you've cut out the legumes... Uh, which is one of the
0: recommendations of a strict paleo diet. Legumes are a, uh, a good source of resistant starch for a lot of people. They're also problematic for a lot of people because uh, people have not developed the ability to digest them appropriately. And that's where the flatulence comes, comes from. Uh, maybe in their uh, a quest to reduce carbs dramatically, they've cut out a lot of fruits and vegetables. And uh, those are major sources of resistant starch for a lot of people. So and clearly, if if you've cut out grains, you've cut out all of the potential resistant starches that would come from grains. So yeah, we we might find instances where there are people who have a dysbiosis, as we call it, in the gut, where uh, the good bacteria are outnumbered by the bad bacteria or overwhelmed by the bad bacteria. And in that case, um, it would behoove them to take some resistant starch supplement or to start to add in more of the foods that contain resistant starches. It's possible to do that without negatively impacting the, if you're trying to be very low carb, you don't necessarily have to to uh, go off plan to get these resistant starches. Again, by supplementing with, the, with potato starch, for instance, which is effectively not impacting your glucose levels at all but is providing a, a source of resistant starch to the uh, to the gut uh, you're accomplishing what you need to, to you, what you set out to do but ultimately when you look at what we're trying to to do here we're trying to create a healthy gut biome we're trying to create an environment in the gut where the where the bacteria are are living in harmony and taking care of us the way they should because a lot of the healthy bacteria help us not only digest food, but create neurotransmitters for to, to make our mood uh, what it is, and, and to improve that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, communication back and forth. You hear about the the gut brain connection. Uh, that's that's a result of the connection between the healthy bacteria and the brain. So we are seeking to develop this this relationship where we have. Uh, taken care of our healthy bacteria, and done all we can to get rid of, of the bad guys that can cause
1: not just upset stomach, but but uh, diseases of all manner. That's great. And on March 26th, you wrote that wonderful post, The Definitive Guide to Resistance Starch, and there's great more detail on all these if you want to go on to MarkStanleyApple.com and read that post, as well as a follow-up post with questions and so forth. So thanks for that nice question, Jason. Go Gators. Oh, sorry, the Gators lost already. Okay, next question.
0: Hi, Mark. My name is Stephen Gray, and following the Primal Blueprint a couple of years ago, I lost 70 pounds, and I feel better than I ever have in my life, so thank you for that. Uh, My question for you is about Primal for vegetarians. I know you've written on this before, but my fiancé is a vegetarian, and I'm trying to help her be a little more uh, Primal slash Paleo with her food choices. But I've been having trouble lately finding any good sources of protein, aside from eggs, uh, that are non-soy for a vegetarian. So I was wondering if you had any tips for me on helping to um, nudge a vegetarian into eating a little more primal without seeming controlling or uh, extreme about it. Anyway, thanks again. Thank you for all that you do. And I really hope to hear an answer to this question. Have a good one. Well, first of all, congrats on that uh, Weight loss of your own that 's phenomenal, and I love hearing these kind of stories, yeah, working with a significant other uh, who has a different eating strategy is sometimes uh, a bit of a challenge in the case of uh, vegetarians there 's a range of vegetarians from kind of militant vegetarian slash vegan to those who are only doing it because uh, they've heard somewhere that it's supposed to be healthy and so they don't know quite why they're doing it, but they're certainly not doing it because of any animal rights issues or whatever. So you sort of have to figure out, first of all, where that person is on the spectrum because if you say, well, she she eats eggs, then what I'm hearing is that animal products per se aren't necessarily um, off her list and maybe she's okay with, if she's okay with eggs, maybe she's okay with dairy. I don't know if she's okay with dairy. Is she possibly okay with some whey protein or some artisanal cheeses? That would be an easy fix. On the other hand, if she's okay with eggs but not okay with dairy, uh, maybe some of the other sources of protein, the hemp proteins, the pea proteins, are out there. These are uh, powdered protein supplements that people can add to their eating program or their their dietary strategy. They're not as good as uh, the whey proteins or the actual animal uh, proteins that you might get from eating real food. But they're a good second choice. They're, they're really um, – they do contribute to the amino acid pool that you're looking to bolster if you're a vegetarian. Another piece of advice and, – and this is what I see with a lot of vegetarians who claim to be primal and claim to be paleo is the first thing they did was they gave up the sugars and gave up the grains. And, and most of their benefits and their results came from those two major changes. It still means you have to figure out how to fill uh, your, your meal plan – with uh, some forms of protein because you can't do it all with fruits and vegetables. I mean, I suppose you can try, but uh, it's 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 very difficult. So if she's okay with eggs, if she's okay with butter, for instance, or ghee or some form of healthy fats, um, this is really as, as much about getting in healthy sources of fats as it is about protein because we really don't need that much protein. If she's not a competitive athlete, she can probably get by with you know, 40 or 50 grams of protein a day coming from various sources. So in some regard, I wouldn't even worry that much about a protein intake. I'd, I'd, I'd start more with appropriate fats, coconut fats, uh, avocado, olive oil. All those things are, are certainly on the list of uh, first fixes for anybody who's looking to become primal uh, from, from any other eating strategy, whether it was a complete carnivore, whether it was standard American diet, whether it was uh, vegetarian or vegan you kind of you almost start with eliminating the sugars and the grains, and then the next thing you do is introduce the healthy fats.
1: Let's take a question from Sam in Florida. Hi, Mark. This is Sam from South Florida. Um, if a person cannot afford um, grass-fed organic meat and uh, organic chicken for whatever reason, um, maybe they're unemployed or they just uh, they can't afford it. Um, is it healthy to eat supermarket um, conventional meat and chicken day in and day out, or is this, um, is this unhealthy? Thank you. Uh,
0: very interesting question. And in the context of uh, strict paleo versus primal blueprint versus, you know, whatever other styles of eating out there, The notion that maybe we should all be eating only grass-fed or line-caught or pastured foods uh, is an interesting one in terms of not just ethics and um, sticking to the program, but sustainability and a number of other questions that arise philosophically. The bottom line is all foods in my world exist on a spectrum, from great choices to not-so-great choices. And meat, fish, fowl, eggs, they all exist on this, on this same spectrum. So in the world of, of um, beef, for instance, grass-fed, grass-finished beef raised without hormones or antibiotics is probably your number one choice. But it is expensive. It's not always available. And there, there are other options. It's, it's as simple as that. The next level down from there would be maybe grain-fed, but still raised without antibiotics or hormones. So now you've got a a pretty healthy animal that was raised with some amount of grass but then finished and fattened with grain. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. What we're looking for when we buy grass-fed beef is we're looking for a fatty acid profile. We're looking for... It's really the fats that we're interested in that are on that animal or in that animal. The protein breakdown between a grain-fed animal and a grass-fed animal is identical. So the protein's always going to be the same. It's really just the fat profile that you're buying when you're paying extra for grass-fed beef. Now, if I've got an opportunity to buy some grain-fed beef that hasn't been exposed to hormones or antibiotics, that's a great choice, and I'll do that. There are some forms of farmed fish that are appropriate to consume. So not all farmed salmon is is horrendous. Uh, There are some operations that raise chickens and turkeys that aren't necessarily entirely pastured, but are raised without hormones and antibiotics that would be appropriate to consume if you don't have access to the best possible alternative. And in any case, all of these choices in my mind are better than a bowl of pasta or... You know, a loaf of white bread or whatever other uh, carbohydrate-based glucose-generating uh, meal that you have in mind for yourself. And ultimately, I see that the, the market is responding to the request for organic uh, and hormone and antibiotic-free. So you can go to a big-box store like a Costco and you can find uh, meat that's on sale or that's on a
1: special uh, that can fit a budget, pretty much fit anyone's budget. Yeah, that's right, Mark, especially if you get creative. And you wrote about this in the 21-Day Transformation also where go volunteer for five hours a week at the co-op and maybe you'll get access to some of the finest quality meat anywhere around your town. Um, the pasture-raised eggs, I go to the local feed store and they are twenty five for a dozen, cheaper than the regular stuff in the supermarket just because they they're, they're not in that pipeline and they don't have three different markups. So I think everybody... Can do well to just try to find the best food available within the circumstances.
0: It may happen that
1: um, if you're a person who's on a
0: budget, you just have to spend more of your time researching what's available near you. Uh, you know, in Europe, a significant part of everyone's annual income is directed toward food because food is such an important part of most European cultures. Here, we've kind of gotten into that whole fast food thing and we've gotten away from that reliance on food being the centerpiece of, of, the, of family and of life in general. So if you, again, if you're on a budget, uh, spend some time doing some research, look into what's available in your area, and understand that all these foods exist on a spectrum. And, and these are just choices. So you don't always have to choose the highest priority, most expensive version of whatever it is you're doing. You could, there, are lots of, there are lots of compromises that you can make without compromising your health. Good
1: question. Thank you for that. And we're kind of running out of time. So we're going to hit the questions again at the next podcast right now. I want to thank everyone for listening and also just uh, mention all the exciting things that we have coming up. First, next on the horizon, the big deal is Primal Con New York for the first time going to the East Coast, June 5th through 8th at Mohonk Mountain House, and we have all kinds of fun outdoor activities planned, as well as the full slate of presentations and expert presenters, both activity-wise and lecture-wise. So if that appeals to you, check out the primalblueprint.com website and all the details and incredible pictures of this beautiful resort up in the Hudson Valley, the Mohonk Mountain House. And then, of course, our flagship fifth annual, hard to believe that we've been doing PrimalCon, for five years now, over at Oxnard, at the NBC Suites Mandalay Beach Resort, September 25th through 28th. Uh, also at primalblueprint.com, with all kinds of details, including the presenter lineup, and even an agenda on there, so you would know what's in store when you go check out PrimalCon. On the publishing side, heads up for an exciting book that's coming out uh, next month in May, called Paleo Girl, and it's the first book of its kind that's actually targeting The Teenage Girl Audience. It's written by our good friend, Leslie Clinky, here in Los Angeles, who's been hanging around the office for a long time and working on this dream for a long time, living the primal paleo lifestyle herself. And she has some amazing words to say to, to teenagers. So if you have a teenager, you're into the primal lifestyle not quite sure how to broach the subject or maybe have received some pushback with your dietary comments, I'm looking forward to giving this book to my daughter and letting her just soak it all in from another resource. So Paleo Girl coming out soon. And on the topic of youngsters, we have another book on its heels later in the fall called Little Grok Meets the Korgs. And it's by, once again, our very own Janae Meadows, our master designer and cinematographer. And she's been working on this incredible book. She showed us the galleys last year and been refining it and telling the story for the age group of four to eight. And that's kind of loose. I mean, you can read it to younger kids and older kids will dig it, too, because it's very, very clever. Beautifully illustrated, of course, by Janae and her sister, Kaylee. And we look forward to getting those books out. Something a little bit, shaking it up a little bit on the pipeline So hopefully you can join us at PrimalCon or at least read the books and listen to the podcast. Thank you so much. And until then, this is your host, Brad Kearns from Malibu. Thanks for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson.